that's when I realized that there was a note, handwritten note from the hotel where the, the women were staying to a dock where the offender had taken them out on a boat. And I just asked, you know, who, who wrote the note? And they said, well, Joan Rogers. I said, well, how do you know that? Welcome back to another episode of Cold Red. I'm Ray Carr, and with me always is Fitz. Today, hey, everyone. We, today we have a very special guest with us, a celebrity inside and out of the law enforcement community, Jana Monroe. Jana was the first female agent in the behavioral science unit and the inspiration behind the Jodie Foster character, Clarence Starling, in The Silence of the Lambs. Jana, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, and thank you for joining us. Oh, well, thank you, Ray and Fitz. It's, it's my pleasure and my honor. I'm really glad to be here. And I want to say up front, Jana, that uh, we'll talk a little bit more how to access it, but you have a brand new book out, Hearts of Darkness. I know the first part, The Behavioral Science Unit and My Life as a Woman in the FBI and serial killers up front. And, and serial killers, but, but not my life as a serial killer, just in, in study. <laughs> yeah. just I love clarity. to play with pronouns. Yes. Uh, hearts of Darkness. And uh, I love the Joseph uh, Conrad connection there to Heart of Darkness. And I've uh, been an author of a few books as a profiler myself. I find you put the word mind, heart, or monster in your title, and it's due to be a bestseller. So <laughs> yeah, you're you off to what? a good start. Well, thank you very much. And it's still um, surprising to me how much uh, the public has an interest in that. It is. And I think you're going to have a special take on it being a woman and the absolute first. I also like in Heart of Darkness, it's uh, it's uh, uh, the the protagonist's name was Marlo. And of course, you're Monroe. And also uh, it was uh, his uh, the overall theme is there. Is there much of a difference between civilized people and savages? I use those in quotation marks. And quite frankly, as profilers, as investigators, um, sometimes there's a sin line, sometimes there's not. And uh, we can talk about all those things. Great. Yeah, I think you're right. And we and, will. Especially the thin line. Yeah, be, because uh, it, sometimes it is there. Jana, we usually like to start out with, uh, for our younger uh, listeners and viewers and everyone out there, is um, how did you, what's your early life like going to school, where you grew up? And tell us about how you got into law enforcement. Okay. Well, I grew up in Long Beach, California. So I was a Southern California girl, but it was way different um, than it is now. Let's just say things have changed considerably. Um, but I, I was odd, and maybe I still am. I don't know. But I was one of these <laughs> that at an uh, early age, 13, um, I knew what I wanted to be, and I never wavered from that, never fluctuated. So it wasn't like you know, some people are going to be a nurse you know, this year, next year, an astronaut, and next year, a teacher. Um, the reason, and I did not have a role model such as, you know, father, brothers, um, anybody that was in law enforcement, but I love this country, and I love the fact that we are a nation of laws and liberties, and I wanted to be a part of that equilibrium, part of that protection. And I hate bullies. I hate people who take advantage of others and the vulnerable and I thought, how can I serve both of those callings? And law enforcement seemed to be the answer. So that, that was what I wanted to do from an early age. And unfortunately, I, I was interested in the FBI. Not That part's not unfortunate. But at the time I was interested, uh, women could be a secretary and 
you two know what this uh, is, a rotor clerk. You could be a rotor clerk, but you could not be an agent. And I was not interested in either of those two functions. And you stuck with your guns and you made it to the special agent. But you were a probation officer, I believe, and police officer beforehand? Right. So when I what I had done is when I was going into college, I went to one of those career fairs and there there was this nice FBI guy. Well, he actually turned out not to be so nice, um, but he was the one that told me I, I wasn't qualified. And I said, yeah, I, I know that. That's why I want to see what kind of courses I should take in college to be more you know, marketable, competitive. And he said, well, you can never be an agent because you're a female like Okay. So, um, and as, as you recall, uh, Mr. Hoover, uh, J. Edgar Hoover passed away in 1972 and it was a class action suit. I was not a part of that, but it was a class action suit that then allowed women to enter the FBI as special agents. But in the interim, I thought what would prepare me the best? So I joined uh, the San Bernardino County Probation Department and then was in the uh, Chino and then lateraled over to the Upland Police Departments, all still Southern California. Interesting. Yeah. So it was, I actually stayed in the, that area longer than I intended for two reasons. Uh, number one, I think I was getting some really good experience. And number two, I was actually enjoying it. But then I had not, uh, I kept my eye on the ball of my goal, which was to join the FBI. So it was time. So that was right. always the goal uh, from the outset. The police departments and probation were just stepping stones. Right, right. And again, you know, in, in the FBI, you can come in and that diversified, modified program. But I mm -hmm. thought, you know, being a teacher or a librarian, although very good professions, that would not make me as competitive as starting in law enforcement and then going into federal law enforcement. You you kind of came in and you were early on when females were still trying to find their way within the bureau. Um, and moving from the police department into the FBI uh, and going to Quantico, did you find it difficult for you um, moving through training? I did not. Um, training is challenging. So I'm not, I'm not saying anything about that, but it was similar to the training I had had previously. So as far as academy, it went from, you know, state and local uh, laws to federal laws. I think the part that was challenging, maybe for everybody, was just the pace, just keeping up the pace uh, with everything, with the firearms, with the, with the physical training, with the educational courses, with practicals. Um, so all of that was, um, like I said, a little taxing. And what was your first office when you got your orders, as we all did? And I remember that that <laughs> night in week seven or eight, whatever it was, because it was only at, at that time when you went through and Jim and I, not that far apart, but at that time it was uh, uh, probably 13 or 14 weeks uh, right. in the academy, which is much longer now. So oh, yeah, what was yeah. your first office? Okay, so this part's funny because as you recall, they make you get up and I don't know, in your classes, yep. but we got up yep, in front of the did. classes. You know, yep. yeah, I can make it analogous to the Academy Awards, right? You open up the envelope. <laughs> well, my, yep. my part was, and it was embarrassing. I don't think anybody knew it at the time. I opened it up and I'd never seen... <laughs> I'd never seen Albuquerque spelled before. <laughs> so I'm going <laughs> Albuquerque yeah, to myself. I didn't say that out loud. Finally, I figured it out. And I'm like, oh, New Mexico. That's where I'm going. <laughs> so it was interesting. That's not what I put. As you know, that the Bureau teases you and asks what your mm -hmm. preferences would be. And then they take great joy in sending you somewhere else. 
Their famous line used to be, we guarantee you, we'll put you within 50 miles of an airport that can take you home. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Great. Yeah, that's Thank right. you, Bureau, Bureau yeah. people. And, and they well, did quite do frankly, that. Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, they did do they, that. I was close to the airport, but that was about all. But from a, for a Southern California girl, obviously a woman at this point, uh, you weren't too far away from home, I suppose, if, uh, uh, as the crow flies. No, but let me tell you about this, though, Jim. So I was um, one of the consummate shoppers at that time. So as you can imagine, uh, in the L.A. area, in Orange County area of California, all these great shopping. I go to Albuquerque, and it was like they had a sea mall, and that, that was it. And then what they did was uh, give me a TDY, temporary duty, in Gallup, Gallup, New Mexico, for oh, people who oh have not boy. been there. Yeah, it's a hardship office for the, for the FBI. Yeah. Yeah. And for the young people out there, back in the mid-80s, there was no Amazon. So if you were yeah. a shopaholic or really liked to shop, you just couldn't go online and do it. You actually had to go to stores in the old days. So I, I feel your pain even a few decades later. Yes. I mean, so, you, sh you should have seen the unattractive shoes that they had available. It was, it was pretty bad. <laughs> well, they had, I know they had a lot of moccasins. Right yeah. out there. In New yes, actually, you're correct. You're correct. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. And we're going to talk about your fashion, your fashion acumen coming up in a bit regarding ballistic material. But Ray, you had a question or two. Go ahead. Were you so how long did you stay in Albuquerque, and then you make your way up and you you make? I, I, did you go through a couple other offices after that? Usually, it was two or three years. You're, you're in an right. office and they move but you? A little bit of an anomaly for this one, Ray, is because uh, Dale and I got married. So he was in the Tampa office. I was in Albuquerque. I stayed 10 months. We got married. And then, you know, they attempt to accommodate uh, a common household. And I'd heard horror stories like, oh, it takes eight months to a year. They actually transferred me within seven weeks and I, I went to Tampa. So that was how I got to nice. my second office. Wow, that's great. That's yeah, the, what a change third, from Albuquerque, well, the, New Mexico. And the third office was even more so. It was to Washington Field Office in D.C., and that's back when they had the old Buzzard Point. And if you recall that, it was yeah. not a very nice area of southeast no. uh, D.C., and we actually had a, a T-shirt that said, I survived uh, Buzzard Point. <laughs> so got my experience in there, too. So what are you working when you're out in the field? When you're when you're when you when you go out to, when you get out to Albuquerque and then you get to Tampa and then you get to WFO Washington Field Office, what are some of the what are some of the violations that, that they that they have you working? Well, I made myself unpopular in um, actually all of the offices for what I what I did. Um, in that we used to call them the the reactive squad or the violent crime right. squad. Every office I went to, there were no females on it. Um, and so I'd go into the SAC kind of like I was auditioning, uh, for an interview and said, you know, this really makes no sense to me that you have, I mean, we all do applicants and applicants was great for interviewing, but then they would put, uh, put me on a squad that was totally had nothing to do with my background. And I'd say, I notice you have no women, no females on this squad. And oh, by the way, I had worked in law enforcement for, um, almost eight years prior to coming in. And every time they did put me on the criminal squad. And every time I jumped ahead of quite a few of my male counterparts who were on a waiting list. So as you can imagine that that did not endear me to them. I'll bet. 
Yeah. But I got a lot of experience in for, back to the question about what kind of crimes and kidnappings. That's when the Bureau, the FBI was doing quite a bit of fugitive work, uh, bank robberies, the, the, those types of things. And in Tampa, there were um, a lot of bank robberies. And Jenna, in the mid 80s, when about when you were there and I'm drawing a blank on his name, but a prolific serial killer in uh, the Tampa area. Was that during your time frame as a as a field agent or was that later in the behavioral unit? Yeah, I think that was later in the behavioral unit. So, but um, right, I don't, you're not talking about, I don't think, Oba Chandler, um, George Treepaul. When, okay. when these names come to me or these, these images, but I don't have the exact name. But, uh, but, uh, but obviously, if you didn't work them there, you certainly got into it before long. So, um, how did it work the next step uh, with you, by the way? Because um, I remember when I saw the profiling unit uh, position open up, I had I saw at 9 o'clock that morning, and I get everything in by 5 o'clock that afternoon on the computer, get the bosses, sign things off. But uh, So you're in the Tampa office one day. How does the behavioral science unit position open up, and how does it come about? Okay, I'll take it a little out of chronology. When I was in the Tampa division, um, I know you're familiar with this, the NCABC, National Center yes. for the Analysis of Violent Crime Coordinator position, uh, was open, and I had that position. So I had quite a bit of liaison and contact with the unit, and um, an agent by the name of Bill Hagmeyer had that Southeast Territory. So I worked a lot with Bill. And that was fortuitous. And that time, Bill um, was interviewing at Stark Prison, Ted Bundy. So yeah. he would come and see me, he being Bill Hagmeyer, not Ted Bundy, uh, would come and <laughs> see me. And we'd do a download. It was very, very um, educational for me as to what he was asking the interview, the type of information that Bundy was revealing, the manner in which he did. So we, we, he shared a lot with me um, about those interviews. And I um, also, there were quite a few police departments at that time that had wanted to elicit the help of the behavioral science unit. So I would box up the materials and send it to, to Quantico, to the BSU, uh, depending on what it was they wanted, you know, link analysis, offender uh, profile, traits, characteristics. So I, I got to interact a lot with the local law enforcement. So when I got I'm sure to you watch, were... go ahead. I'm sure when you were the NCABC coordinator, you had gone to Quantico for a week or two at a time to get some specialized training. Yes, I did for in-services, as we call them. Yes, yes, I did. And then to directly answer your question, when I got to the Washington field office and jumped over all my colleagues to get on the, uh, there were 18 of us on the reactive squad, then to add insult to injury, I only stayed about four months because like your experience, um, I received a call from Bill Hagmeyer and he said, there's an opening this morning. I got everything in. I took vacation, uh, got everything in that day, and then interviewed uh, with John Douglas and another agent two days later. Yeah, the uh, world famous, uh, kind of the grandfather of uh, profiling, John Douglas. And uh, so you, have, you get a chance to work a few years with him because our ships passed in a night. We'll come up to that in a bit, as did ours kind of in a way when I first right. got there. Right. Um so give us a time frame. You show up at the, and it was the behavioral science unit, right? Because there was a split after a while. Right. I believe you were BSU. Yes, I was BSU. And then it went through several name iterations. And um, I've got yes. the t-shirts 
<laughs> that happened the ISU <laughs> investigative support unit. I was never for that one because it sounded like an investigative support, like you were not really involved in yes. it. Then BAU it, and, and um, one of my colleagues was testifying, actually, Judd Ray. I don't know if you ever met Judd sure, Ray. I not? Okay. Oh, yeah. He's a character, wonderful character. But anyway, he um, was testifying. I think it was Bordier sometime. But they said, well, the judge goes, this is not a science. You're analysts. You're not scientists. And that was kind of the catalyst for changing the name once again. Interesting. Then it just went to the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime for a number of years. Right. And then it wasn't until 2003, I believe, they actually changed it to the Behavioral Analysis Unit, one, two, and three. But the BSU right. was still separate. And I think finally, about five years ago, they combined them all into like now six or seven BAUs, Behavioral Analysis Units. That's right. right. Bringing us it's up like to the you, present. But uh, yeah, you really have to have like a scorecard or something. I can imagine, you know, that public, somebody trying to reach out for somebody. It's like, well, which, which one of these are you actually looking for? It would be a little right. complex. Well, it's interesting you say that. I'm writing my fourth book now about the, you know, right after Unabomb, I got back and I put it like in a little admin note. I'm going to call it the profiling unit. Now, I've never had that official name, but then I, I gave a little bit of clue. It was ISU, it was BSU, and I finally said profiling unit until I, we finally get to BAU and then it makes it much more, much more clear there. So, uh, so again, uh, first woman doing a lot of things. Um, I know you weren't the first woman in the FBI. There were a few before you. And um, but you were definitely first in the BSU. And but if you have you knew Doug Douglas, you knew Bill Hagmar, I'm sure the welcome mat was out there, at least to some degree. Right. And, <laughs> and you know what? I think I am. Um, I'm very much not a history revisionist. You have to put yourself back in the time frame. Mm -hmm. Things are different. Our culture has changed. Society has changed. So no, there wasn't a welcome map, but no, but everybody was great to me. So yeah. um, I, I have zero complaints on that. And that's kind of just the way things were. It was like, uh, and they even said, we're kind of taking a chance on you. Um, and that's how things were looked at at that time. Right. I mean, and in the rear view mirror, people can take those comments out of context and say, you know, oh, how horribly they treated you. No, they didn't. They, they were, they were very good to me. Well, that's good to hear. And I know Ray and I, uh, I went through the police academy in 76. There was one female in my police academy class and in my police department, Ben Salem PD, one female. So to me, from the earliest days, women were in law enforcement for my career and they belong there. No ands, if or buts. There are some great male investigators and, and law enforcement officers, some not so great. And the same applies to females. And I'm sure you would relate to that, too. So each person yeah. has to be judged accordingly. Oh, absolutely. And I, I look at it, uh, some of the presentations that I do, and, and one of my things that, that is so inspiring to me is trying to encourage and inspire younger people, predominantly women, but young men too, um, if it's within your skill set, right? Go for it. Do it. I used to say, you know, if I wanted to be an opera singer, then I'm way out of luck. I didn't, I don't have that skill set. <laughs> but if you know you can do something, don't be daunted by the lack of a welcome wagon. And another one, I'm sure I plagiarized this from someone, but if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. And that's what I always did. I got, you know, professionally invited myself when I was uh, in Albuquerque. None of the guys on the other squads would invite me on their arrests. You know, how you get a team together. Um, and so I would just go say, hey, I heard you're doing an arrest on this. I'm available. I know you're going at, you know, 530 in the morning, you're assembling and doing all this. And once I showed I was really willing to work, 
and that I, you know, had read all about it. I knew what the operations order were. I knew what we were doing. Um, I became more, they, they included me more often. That's 90% of the, that's 90% of the battle, Jan. I mean, right. when you, when you think about it, if, and that's how I was, if, if there was a, a fairly new agent that came on, uh, a lot of times we would offer them to come with us. But the biggest part of that was, do they want to work? That's and right. You, you'll, you'll find today, at least towards the end of my career, that a lot of agents, uh, they weren't as interested in working as much as the, yeah. as the old time bureau people were. I just, yeah. I just see that, you know? Yeah. You know what? And again, I think it's, it's culturally, it's this time yeah. frame. I mean, people look at, you know, when I would say how many hours we worked, they look at me and it wasn't something like, gee, I admire it. It's like, oh, you poor thing. Uh, right. <laughs> you didn't right. know when to stop. Exactly. And I loved it. It was like an adrenaline pump. And I felt, you know, in, in order to do so, I wanted to be prepared for what it was I was doing. I didn't expect anybody to take me by the hand. Now, you always pay attention, you listen, and you learn. But I thought the more prepared I could be, and the only way you do that is by volunteering for things so that you get that experience. That works so for all of us. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So you're down in the unit. What's the first case, memorable case, that you remember that comes across to you that you actually get involved in and you're actually running with it? Well, this probably isn't a fair response because um, I only had one case in an entire time, and I think you can relate to this, Jim, that I got to see from the beginning to the end, and that was the Rogers case, the um, mother and two daughters that were brutally killed in uh, Tampa Bay. And I was there on scene when they were fished out uh, by the mm, St. Peter's. That's right. Yeah. Right. Blah, blah, blah. So then as a coordinator, um, I worked with them quite a bit on it. Then I get transferred. Right. So now I'm in the unit and the case had gone cold and that had had such a negative impact. Tampa's a, a lot about, you know, tourism, right? Well, their tourism was down. This case had not been resolved. Um, and so they came to us and said, okay, we've missed something. What? Let's take a look at it again. So fresh set of eyes. We all looked at it. And that's when I realized that there was a note, handwritten note from the hotel where the, the women were staying to a dock where the offender had taken them out on a boat. And I just asked, you know, who, who wrote the note? And they said, well, Joan Rogers. I said, well, how do you know that? No answers. So long story short, um, the officers take it to the, uh, the husband. And he said, that, no, that's not my wife's handwriting. And we blew it up on a billboard. All of the, the merchants there were like for free, right? Okay, whatever, just blow it up. This is before the internet, right? I mean, today you look at it as a precursor to an inter internet style approach. But we blew up the handwriting on billboards, and in less than 48 hours, we had several people with the same name. So, Oba Chandler. Wow. So, we were, I was able to follow that, continually help out with some of the interview techniques, whatnot. And then he was actually um, convicted and executed. Now, I didn't go to the execution, um, but so when I say the most interesting case, because I got to see it from beginning to end, and it was also very disturbing because I made an effort to always refer to the cases as case, you know, file number 152 or 165, but right. I got to recognize them and, and know them um, by name. So it made it more painful. But think about the innovation with that. I mean, when you think about, and we're, we're talking about, is this the early nineties? Yes. You're talking 91, about 
Yeah. Well, just think about that. 1991, and there's no internet. There's not a whole lot you can do. How are we going to find this out? And you say, you know what? Let's put it up on a bulletin board all over Tampa and see if someone can identify that. Talk about innovation and initiative. And that's what solves the case. I think that is absolutely amazing. Well, and we're talking about detail, right? Paying attention to every little detail. You know, okay, how, how do right. you know that? You know, and, and okay, you are assuming that's the worst thing, as you know, in an investigation to do is assume something. You, you've got to know the source. So. You know, the, Jenna, about five years later, I was at Unibom with a big debate. Do we publish the manifesto? Different set of circumstances. The, the Internet was around then. And I do remember the case and talking about some of the old timers back there and said, yeah, I think uh, our Jenna had some success. And, and among other investigative clues was putting that letter, putting that note out there. And uh, and uh, and I borrowed from that and we argued the point. And eventually we got the manifesto published. So, yeah, I'm a firm believer. And if there's a letter, a note, and you still have an open case, uh, a manifesto, get it out there. Someone will identify the thoughts, ideas, even the writing. Yeah, you know, you're a brother. Um, you know, somebody's going to take a look at that. And in this case, um, the reason someone would notice handwriting, again, people were handwriting more, cursive writing, which is a lost art. But um what Oba Chandler had been doing, he was in his own business and building in screen patio. If you don't have a screen patio in Florida, you get eaten alive by mosquitoes, by bugs. And apparently he did very shoddy work. So he was in small claims court with a lot of people. And he added insult to injury in that he would refute claims with pages and pages of nasty notes to, to the clients. And so they recognized his handwriting right away. Yeah. Wasn't terribly bright. You're going to be a killer. You don't want to leave those kind of clues around. Or and, be and nasty. You took us back to t well, that too. You took us back to Tampa just for our listeners' sake. It was Bobby Joe Long who was a serial killer yes. in Tampa. Okay. He okay. killed 10 women in the mid 80s over, I think it's about eight yep. or nine months, give or take. And uh, I mean, that was before my time in the Bureau, or whatever. But uh, uh, I know we did some research on that later on. Yeah, I did not work on that, but my uh, Stan Jacobson was an agent uh, who preceded me as the coordinator, and he had uh, quite a bit of work. He did work on that one. So, so at some point, um, you come across uh, the giant of a man and a bright man, Ed Kemper, <laughs> and you wind up uh, talking to him in prison. He's even calling you on the phone, I believe. Walk us through that whole relationship and how that ever came together. Well, and I think if you look at it and you'd mentioned John Douglas and I think, you know, the father of profiling and I, Bob wrestler, and he used to wrestle with that because he said he was the father of profiling. Um, and I think they both, they both were, you know, and, and very, very valuable in what they did in, in devising the whole program, but they had talked to uh, Edmund Kemper before also. And, and we're talking about when you said a giant, he's six foot nine, I don't know what he weighed at the time, but he big frame, big, big guy. And the 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 way I would describe him, um, I don't like to use the word intimidating, but it kind of fits uh, in, in this situation because he had that um, way of looking through you and into you at the same time, if that makes any sense. And I can make sure. that analogous to Dr. Hannibal Lecter, I think, although fictitious, um, Anthony Hopkins in the movie Silence of the Lamb did a fabulous job of that stare where he he's looking at you, but not really focused and then rarely blinks. So it was kind of like that. It was one of those. And 
with normal, and I know there's quite a spectrum of normal, people, when you're speaking to them, they'll acknowledge, they'll smile, they'll blink, they'll do something that lets you know they're receiving your information. Uh, didn't get any of that. So no body language, no body clues that you would experience with most folks. And it's a little unsettling you know, to, to have that. And then pauses in the conversation, which as you know, that's a powerful tool when you're the one doing the interviewing, but when it's on the other end, that can be a little unnerving too. ask a question. And then he'd sit and stare at me for what seemed like a minute, probably only 20 seconds, but it was an abnormal length of time. So. From that, from that normal guy. And, uh, <laughs> we should mention he killed a number of people, decapitated them, including his mother, correct. Another female college students. Yeah, he, I mean, if you read up on him, it was brutal. I found his, um, the heinous nature, the egregious and grisly nature of his crimes. He killed his grandparents when he was 15. Right. Um, and then he was, yes, he was sent to a juvenile mental facility. Gets out when he's a little over 21 with one of the terms and conditions being he not live with his mother because they had such a vitriolic relation. So what does he do? Moves in with his mother. So it's shortly thereafter that he starts his uh, killing spree with, with co-eds. He was, he was uh, dubbed named the co-ed killer. But he, um, he told the police that he had to turn himself in uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they were too inept to ever catch him. And he was going to continue killing uh, unless he was uh, confined. And so that's why he turned himself in. But we learned a lot from him in that, in the Santa Cruz area, what he told us after the fact was he would go into the, they used to call them the local watering hole, uh, a local bar where officers would go sometimes and have a drink, you know, after work just to, you know, have a beer to let their hair down. Well, he would be within earshot of them and they were speaking openly about the case and what they were doing. And he would then buy them a round of beers. And nobody thought anything of it because he'd hang around a lot. So it's just like there's that big Ed guy. And he told us how much information he was able to obtain by being friendly with them and then by just overhearing things. So it was a really valuable lesson. Well, well a lot of these offenders, as we know, they like to get involved in the investigation. And that was mm -hmm. his way of getting involved in it by just Absolutely. sitting and listening. And I, I understand that Kemper dated one of the Santa Cruz. Uh, detectives' daughters. Yeah. Now, wouldn't wouldn't that give you a fright when you uh, realize well, yeah, who I it mean, was? How about wow. that? I mean, you know, that's looking yeah. at him because in one of the classes I teach, he's one of the case studies that a lot of the kids do, right. and he's a really, really remarkable individual. Uh, I don't, I don't say that. Uh, I say he's remarkable in what he was able to do in a time period and how he was able to do it. Uh, well, and but he's, you know, uh, the other thing, too, if you believe in IQ tests, I mean, we have them, right? So as much as you believe in him, he scored anywhere from like 160 to 180. So from an yeah. academic or he, he was a bright person, just very sociopathic and very abnormal in that. But I had a tape of him uh, that I viewed with, with John Douglas and Bob Ressler when they had been talking to him. And, and to me, he was parrot parroting or regurgitating what a psychiatrist would have said. So this is like his third time trying to get parole. And he would try to conjure up a tear. It, it, was, it was amazing watching him. And he'd say, matricide, you know, this monotone, matricide is a horrible crime. I am now remorseful. <laughs> I mean, it didn't match, but he was giving it, uh, giving it his all in an effort for that. So it was fascinating to watch somebody that intelligent 
um, but it still couldn't mimic what normal was. So how do you two come together? What What is it that brings you and Ed Kemper together? Well, what, so I did do uh, an interview, but what happened, and, and you know how we, we did the interviews with the standardized protocol, we, the FBI, can't give them anything. We can't give them a stay of execution, a change of prison, better food. So what do you do to get them to give you information is we appeal to their egos. And surprisingly enough, it worked most of the time. Something such as, you know, we want to learn from you. You were so good, so adept at, at what you were doing. And you could do it either two ways. Say that we want to learn from you. Uh, we don't know about this, so we need to learn from you. Or if you felt that they would really go with this and say, I'm sure you don't want other people to do this. So if you could give us some of these insights, we could help prevent that from happening. Either, either way. Well, when I spoke with him, um, I said, yeah, thank you so much I'm, for learning from you. Um, and if you think of other things, you know, let me know. Obviously, I didn't give him my phone number or anything, but he knew how to contact the FBI. So I was working on a case and apparently he had read about it. He got the information somehow. So he called headquarters and then they put the call through to me at Quantico and he wanted to offer some help as to how to catch this killer. And, and what I think it was, again, the attention appealing to the ego. And here, obviously, here's a case you, you FBI people haven't been able to solve yet. So let me add my, my assistance. Life imitating art in that regard, uh, or art imitating life later with Silence of the Lambs. Before we go away from Ed Kemper, I, I believe in training from John Douglas. He told us that he so disliked his mother that he killed her and decapitated her. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't he put her head out in the garden, but where she was somehow looking up into the window and he would do certain things up there just to, <laughs> I guess, piss her off even more? Well, what he did initially, because and I, we can only surmise that they were having one of their screaming matches, yelling at each other. But when he killed her, he um, cut out her larynx and threw it down the garbage disposal. So that's where the police yes. found it. But then um, what he had to do, her uh, girlfriend was coming over. They were going on vacation the next day. So she came over in the morning and he hadn't cleaned anything up and he did put the head outside. So he had to kill her also. So, but yes, you, you're correct with that, that other part. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, I've sat down with some serial rapists uh, convicted uh, long, you know, gone away. Ray has done the same thing. Um, but um, uh, I haven't quite talked to anyone like a Kemperer. And fortunately, there aren't too many of those type of guys around. Although uh, I'd love to have a chance with BTK. I know some people doing some work thinking he may have committed some other murders in some other states. Right. And uh, we're seeing if we can get that whole thing put together. But uh, he'd be a fascinating person to sit down and uh, and talk Absolutely. to. Absolutely. You know what I'd like to, to do sometime? We started, I started it with uh, Roy Hazelwood, rest his soul. Um, rest in peace. But then we did not get the support to do it. Was interviewing significant others, wives, girlfriends yeah. of serial killers who were aware yeah. of what they were doing. Some of them even assisted with that yeah. um and to the surprise the few that we interviewed one was like she had a master's degree and was an emergency room nurse another they they were quite accomplished and had the skill sets uh that i would not have thought um and i don't know if anyone else is is doing that research but to me that's a, a big interest is what, now what's wrong with these women that are staying with these people that actually knew that and i mean and you look at ted bundy 
uh, he got married and had a, a conjugal visits with his wife. She knew very that's when he was on death row and he had a daughter. Well, and as you well know, some of these women, for them not to be the victims, for them not to be tortured or killed, right. they would then have to help these sadistic, psych, sure. you know, uh, very bad husbands, maybe psychotic, but certainly uh, with other mental health issues to uh, facilitate their, you know, capturing these women and tricking them into the van. There's a Canadian couple, right. I think our friend Greg McCrary worked the case of the of the Canadian husband and wife, and she was she was a, a big facilitator in getting women to sure. come into their car, into their van, and uh, and uh, and she could sit back and she wouldn't be the one tortured and killed. Although eventually they had an argument too, and I think that's when she called authorities and, uh, and turned them in. So hell hath no fury like a serial killer's wife who is scorned. <laughs> Yeah, that I hear. Was Paul I see Bernardo. another book coming there. Yes. Yeah. There you go. That was Paul Bernardo and Halopia, his girlfriend, his uh, right. girlfriend, wife. The first victim was actually her sister. That's right. And that was up yeah. in the Toronto area. I yeah. was in Buffalo yeah. at that time when that stuff was going on as well. But uh, it, I think I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jenna, that uh, there was a time that you had an elevator ride or you were alone with Kemper and he made a statement to you. Well, that was actually, that was John. That was John and Bob Ressler that they had finished okay. interviewing him and they were in the elevator. And this was really, they really shouldn't talk about it. It was a bad, bad on, thing on the prison because they're never supposed to be in an elevator with, with them. And, and it was a lunch, uh, a lunch break. And I don't, one of the guards did not get in the elevator with him. And Camper just looked down at him and said, you know, I could kill you right now if I wanted to. And that's all he said. And John said that was the longest elevator ride. And I remember him, I said, well, how many floors were you going? He goes, one. But it was the longest <laughs> elevator ride I've ever had in my life. Yeah, I'll bet it was. Yeah. He's that. a big man. You think six foot nine when you, you know, he's a big, he's a, he's a big man. Well, and, and like I said, it was, it, it was the total package of him because yeah. he would say things like that and just stare at you um, w without a, you know, any, that flat affect and not an appropriate response and, and just something like that would just land there. You know, you could kill you and it's like, okay, yeah, but are you going to, <laughs> I mean, you know, he, uh, he could be very intimidating. So now you're in the, uh, the BSU. Uh, there's a book that came out a few years before by an author named Thomas Harris. And all of a sudden someone gets a phone call or some boss at headquarters says, yeah, there's this book, Silence of the Lambs, and uh, they want to make a movie and they want to actually film it here. Walk us through that process. Uh, Ray and I are both involved in TV shows and series and that stuff, but you have a, you were there in the earliest days for a very successful movie. How did that all come about? And of course, you eventually met up with Jodie Foster and you were sort of her mentor uh, in terms of how to be an FBI agent. Walk us through that. Please. Okay. So, and, and probably, I don't know if you're aware of this, but at least at that point in time, headquarters really didn't know what we did, you know, mm. in detail. It's okay. like, there's that, that unit over there and silence of the lambs kind of put us on the map. And we had right, and I'll get back to the original question, but right after the movie came out, and especially when it uh, won the Academy Award and Jodie Foster got the Academy Award, the phone was ringing off the hooks. We had our own um, PIO, public information officer. They sent somebody from headquarters to be with us full time for almost two years um, because they're well, are you going rogue? You can't be doing all these. What, what are you doing? You know, they, because um, I know John Douglas was, was on quite a few things. And, and so they made sure we were going through proper protocol uh, with that. So we got a lot of um, a lot of attention from 
headquarters at that point in time. But yeah, the cast and for crew, better or worse, uh, right? <laughs> yes, for better or worse. Uh, the cast and crew uh, came down, and you know why I say came down because uh, the behavioral science unit at that time was two floors below the gun cleaning room. It used it was mm -hmm. originally deemed to be J. Edgar Hoover's bomb shelter. It was not supposed to be office space. Yeah. Hmm. But anyway, um, so the whole crew came down and they wanted, along with Thomas Harris's, I think, original intent, he wanted to show off Quantico and the training and the academy. So they kept that genuine and did a lot of the filming there. They had some people, the, some agents without speaking parts, and I think a few from the physical training unit and all of some of the, the classrooms, uh, the yellow brick road that Jodie Foster did. But what Jodie Foster and I did was, she was very impressive. She took uh, very professional. She took the role very seriously. She already knew her role. And then she would ask me questions like the script says I would do this and say this. Is that what you'd really do? And I'd say like, no, no, I wouldn't. Or I'd say this or that. I, of course, had no influence on anything, but she did. So if she wanted to change something in the script or say it a certain way, um, she pretty much got what she wanted. But we went over a lot of things like that. Just how would an agent do it? Would they say something like that? How would they behave? Would you, you know, if you were going into a death row or a maximum security prison, how would you dress? Well, not high heels, bunch of makeup, you know, try to make yourself as, as plain as possible. You're going to draw enough attention as it is. Let's not do anything else to, you know, exacerbate the situation. So she winds up showing up at uh, Quantico. And by the way, I believe to this day, that's the only movie or TV series ever actually filmed in Quantico. I don't think that's been, I know I did a, a bonus feature for Criminal Minds in 2005 or so in the library, but but in terms of doing a whole movie or a series, I believe um, um, Silence of the Lambs is the only one. So you are gonna have that distinction. Yeah, you know, I um, I wouldn't refute that at all. I certainly can't uh, can't think of anything. So, yeah. And they did spend a, a lot of time. And I think the whole crew, uh, at least the, the people that I encountered, um, it was very it was a pleasant experience because they were very respectful of what we were doing. And, and you know, in some of the areas, people were still working and carrying on business and whatnot. And um, they were mindful and respectful of, of everything that we did. So that was nice. And the um, I forget the actor's name, but he was kind of portraying a composite character of John Douglas and uh, Bob Ressler as sort of the supervisor of, uh, of Clarice Starling. And, uh, and I think both of them claimed <laughs> he's the actor that was portraying them. So a uh, little bit of right. egos with those two guys. <laughs> I don't think they would even deny it. And Bob Ressler, yeah. RIP, he died a number of years ago, but, yes, uh, but John was certainly that way. So, uh, uh, and, and you know, and he earned it. I mean, he can have a bit of an ego because he was there right. in the early right. days, uh, so that, that's that's very interesting on that part. I'm guess, and you said you actually went to the theater to see it, and you were amazed, basically how right they got everything. Yeah, they had a special showing for us at a theater outside, uh, just outside the part of Quantico, um, and so it was just for us. So there were maybe like thirty people because the, some of the crew and the cast were there also, and except for the fact <laughs> that they still had Clarice as a trainee and they would not have given her a real gun and had mm. her go do all that. That always yeah, yeah. bothered me. I said, you could make her a real agent. I'm here, you know? Um, but <laughs> other than that part that they didn't change, um, I, I thought they, they really did an 
excellent job for that kind of a movie because it was gory at that point in time. And But they did a lot. They showed some, but it wasn't something like, you know, a dead teenager movie where they just show you a hack sign, everybody. I think they, if you could do something tastefully, that's probably an oxymoron. Um, they did so and tried to capture what we had advised them is how something would take place. Yeah, and a credit to Harris for his research and writing the book, but also for the uh, producer and director and, of course, the actors for going along there. Ray, any follow-up to that part uh, for Jenna? No, I, I, think you, uh, I think you covered it pretty well. What about uh, uh, Anthony Hopkins? Did you get a chance uh, to meet him too, Jenna? I did. I did. And then um, unexpectedly, about a year later, I went to three different White House correspondence dinners um, in D.C. So because uh, – the unit had so much attention. I got to know a lot of reporters and, you know, newspaper magazine articles. And so there, there were these two women that I'd been on a couple of their TV shows. Mary Madeline had a show back in the day with, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the co-host, but I was on that show and a couple others. So they would invite me uh, to that and the table. And they, it was just fortuitous. They set me at, it was next to Anthony Hopkins. Hmm. I mean, I, it, it was amazing. So um, he was, very quiet. And even at this, this dinner, and I always got the sense that he was studying. I mean, he was very gracious. Mm -hmm. And of course, the lovely British accent, but it's like he was studying to maybe be an, another character in something. Not nearly as uh, I would have thought maybe more gregarious or interactive. But the few times that I spent time with him, he, he was not that way. So kind of earmarked me, I always think, how did he or who did he speak to? Or who did he research to be able to play the way he did that character? Oh, I tell you, you know, when I, I like reading books, uh, and usually the movie falls a little short because I think like most people, you develop what the character's like in your mind, right? You you see mm -hmm. what they're supposed to look like. He's been the only one that actually exceeded my thought. He, I would get goosebumps when he'd say Clarice and, you know, just how he'd stare, like I said, through you. I don't know who he, he didn't reveal who he studied on that, but I think he did a superb job. He was very creepy. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I thought that was fabulous. Have yeah. you, have you, have you seen, um, the Netflix series, Mindhunter? Is it Mindhunter? Yes. Yeah. I, I didn't, I haven't finished it. I've seen, um, eight episodes. Did you see the episode with Kemper? No, I have not. I haven't seen it. Well, when yet. you see that episode, we'll have to talk again. You have to, what the thing that really attracts me to it, and I look at it, is the likeness of the characters of the offenders. I was wow. really taken by that. So yeah. when you see Kemper, uh, the individual, you have to let me know what you think. I'm not going to spoil it for you, but you have okay. to let me know what you think about it. Okay, I'll it's, put that uh, one next on my list. Yeah, put it on your bucket list there, Dan. <laughs> so Hopefully it's not the bucket list, yeah. <laughs> Let's, let's the nexus I've heard of you uh, before I got to Quantico. You know, I never saw the movie Silence of the Lambs. And then in, I think it was uh, um, like late 94, the opening for the, they were bringing 18 new profilers in, uh, I think 12 to the, remember, Caskew. We forgot about this one, Child Abduction right. and Serial Killer Unit. Killer Bill units. Hagmeyer was in charge of that. And they were bringing in six new profilers to the investigative support unit. We were all special agents, all being promoted to supervisor. And I just put in for it, you know, eight hours. And, you know, four months later, I wind up getting told I get it. So I show up in Quantico for this is like my fourth academy now, so to speak. And um, and for uh, 
for, for profiling training, so to speak. And you were one of our instructors. And this is now April of 95. And uh, I know you, you instructed a few of the blocks of training there. I was, you know, very impressed with that. And um, I also remember something uh, we shared, a long car ride together, because an agent named Bill Christian was killed in, um, in May of uh, 1995. He was a Washington field office agent. He was killed hunting a fugitive, I think, in Maryland. And in early June, they had the uh, funeral service for him. I remember about six of us, I think about 20 of us went from Quantico, but about six right. of us were in the same car. I remember sitting next to you, Jana, and uh, of course, we were discussing his life and what it's like being an FBI agent. And we can talk about all this fun stuff with serial killers and people in prison making arrests. But the reality is agents and law enforcement officers get killed too. And I didn't yes. know, Bill, I'm not sure if you did or not. Um, but nonetheless, we went to repay our respects. And that was a, a tough day, a long day, but I got to know you pretty well in the back of the car. And as bright as you were, and as much as you knew your stuff, you were an interesting person and a and a fun person, wow. kind of a, you have to kind of have gallows humor sometimes on days like that to kind oh, of just get gosh. through things, uh, because burying one of your own, uh, in that regard is very difficult, right? About a year later, you lost an agent in Philly. I know, I know you knew him. Yeah. So, um, yes. mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, so, but so that's, then I hit the road. I, you know, I graduate, I'm on vacation. I'm off the Unabom. I kind of lose track of what's happening. I'm this guy that's sent out to this at, uh, outpost. I always said it's like the, um, the Kevin Costner character in Dancing with Wolves. I'm just like sent out to this out, outpost in San Francisco, and my own profilers don't even know me. Now, John Douglas had just retired. So now, summer of 95, you're about to make a move, right, career-wise? Yes. Give or take? Yes. Yep. Tell so us. summer of 95, yeah, that's uh, when I ended up going into the uh, the San Diego office. And the irony of that one is I had never worked a white collar crime case in my life. And so they made me the supervisor of the white collar crime squad, of course. Um, and it was Euro a large sense. squad. Yes. Um, it was just, it was the winding down of the financial institution fraud epidemic that was going on in, in the 90s. And so I had a squad of 21 agents, uh, 20 men and a female, all accountants. And so uh, the way I approached it, I said, you know, I'm going to learn from you. Uh, you know, I'm not an accountant, so I'm going to learn from you. And I said, I'm new to that, but I'm not new to life. So let's not confuse the two. Um, and what we did was start a public corruption squad. San Diego had never had a public corruption squad. And I, they said, well, the, there's no corruption here. I said, that's nonsense. There's corruption everywhere. <laughs> um, long story short, uh, two dynamite agents ended up getting, uh, it was a two-year-long case, and it was five judges and one attorney that were convicted of, of the quid pro quo for throwing cases. And so it was, it was a huge case. So, And that's all off your squad that you supervised? Yes. yes. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, it, it was very great. impressive. I, I loved it. We didn't have to say I told you so because it, it for the, you know, for San Diego, it was, it was a huge case and it was kind of like, yeah, okay, no corruption. Okay. <laughs> so now, was that a lateral good. move to San, San Diego uh, as a as supervisory special agent? Yes. Yes. You didn't stop yes. there. Yeah. What happened I next? Not uh, then I became the uh, ASAC assistant special agent in charge of the, the Denver office and had just about everything uh, on that one. It was a little lopsided, but I, again, I love the experience. So I, I got to supervise many different cases in that one and um, showed up uh, two days after Columbine and oh, the boy. FBI SWAT. Yeah. And 
I was the only one there. So the SAC had not reported one ASAC that was a two ASAC office had retired uh, and the other one had been promoted. So there was nobody in place. Everybody was acting. So I get there and we had the FBI's SWAT team had augmented Jefferson County SWAT team. And what I did, there was there were a few of the uh, SWAT agents that had children that had gone to Columbine. Um, none of them had been injured, but they didn't know that when they were making entry. So what I did was get some external psychologists, not through the EAP employee assistance program, because I felt, um, SWAT has its own culture, right? And going for uh, counseling was never something that, uh, people would readily do. So I called the SWAT commander and SWAT team leader and said, I'm going to offer all of your SWAT team to go off you know, out of the building here, um, very private, but they can go to counseling. And he goes, um, none of them are going to do that. And I said, you know what? You don't have to go. It's not mandatory. I'm giving an offer. But I said, I'm going to speak to them all. And I just wanted you to be aware of that. Anyway, they all went except him. So <laughs> it was great. And some went for a little over a year and we, we got the, the FBI to pay for that. And it was just something from a psychological, you know, there's physical health, but there's mental health. And when yep. you have, um, I'll say guys, they were all men on, on the SWAT team that see something like that and then have no outlet, outlet except here, go have a beer. Um, I, I felt that it was really something that we should at least offer them. No, no doubt. That's wise so, decision. Yeah. I'll tell you why. I think that's great. Um, uh, you know, uh, you were ahead of your time, Janet. I mean, I think that's great because not oh, many people you. would have done that. So I, 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 being a, as a former SWAT guy, uh, I can I can really attest that uh, yeah I, I I would have taken advantage of that you know and so, you know uh, thank, thank you and it's interesting you say that so my husband Dale Monroe who were in the bureau together right and he was on the hostage rescue team uh, the whole time that I was in the behavioral science unit and then because we moved so much he was on every SWAT team every move we made and he was the SWAT team leader or the SWAT commander in in three of the offices which. You don't see very often, right? You know, that they're going to move from, from office to office. And he told me, he goes, well, I wouldn't go. And I said, that's fine. You know, that's why I said this is not mandated. It's just an offer. And I said, but um, all of the guys on this team here saw something pretty horrific. And they're all quite a bit younger. You know, and I said, we're talking about different generations and people gravitating to different things. So I said, that's why I think we need to at least offer things to people because th the culture is shifting. You know, it's funny, we, we talk about compartmentalization, and Jim and I talk about that quite a bit on the show. But just what you're talking about right here, you know, not only serial offenders being able to compartmentalize, but agents too. Uh, oh, yeah. Agents have the ability to do that as well. And you talk yes. about the ability, but when you look at some of these serial offenders and their, their ability to compartmentalize, uh, did that did that shock you, how they were? How they could turn it off and turn it on? It didn't shock me. It surprised me. I have different levels of that. And and the reason it didn't shock me, I think, is because I encountered folks like that before. So it's hard for me to go back to the very first time. But I was surprised at how effective they are at it. So when you, lo you look at people, right, uh, and I knew quite a few undercover agents that compartmentalize things. And with most people, if you have a conscience, right, somehow or another, it's going to come out. And it's going to come out in some form of aberrant behavior that you don't want just because you've never really dealt with it because you compartmentalized it. But the people without a conscience that did such horrific things, it's, it is pretty amazing that they can compartmentalize it and then talk about it 
as if they were getting a haircut with right. no emotion. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. I find I find that fascinating. I find yeah. that fascinating. They're able to do that. And and I remember in some of the interviews with uh, some of the attorneys and uh, some of the other people that worked the Kemper case that identified Kemper as a nice guy. You know, they yeah. said, when you get to talk to him, he's really a down, down inside. He's really a nice guy. And I'm thinking, <laughs> how can you say that? I mean, you don't really, you haven't seen the, the worst side of him then. Well, Ray, do you remember? So I watched, if you recall, uh, Ted Bundy, um, he defended himself, right? Just because he did, yes. he'd attended a couple of law classes. But when at the very end, and I've, I've got the clip of this, uh, all black and white, but the judge, the judge blew me away with this. He said, you know, you're a nice young man. You know, I did, sorry to have to sentence you like this, but you went, I would like to have had practiced with you. He mean law, but you went the wrong direction, son. He called him son. He said, you're a nice guy. You did a good job. I'm like going, what? So the judge was the one that actually shocked me. Having heard everything that Bundy did and looking at all this, and then it's still in summation or for his summation to say something like that was shocking. Well, here's, here's my thing on that, John and Jim. When you look at these people and even law enforcement and attorneys, they're supposed to be so savvy and be able to read these people so well. And then you wonder, how do these offenders get their victims to come with them? And then you look at the regular people and they get sucked in just as these oh, yeah. victims got sucked in. Oh, and yeah. It's just that, that's what amazes me the most. Yep. Yeah. And when you talk about Kemper, too, like I said, he, he bought the beers for the guys. And, you know, anybody I always look at it. It's kind of like dating. Anybody can be on your best behavior for an hour or two. Right. So uh, apparently he wasn't showing any bizarre signs or whatever. And he bought him a beer. So, hey, what a nice guy. Yeah. It's so superficial when people make those kind of, you know, somebody's nice or I know him and he would never do something like that. It's uh, kind of meaningless. And there's there's other kind of killers out there that don't have that. Uh, we'll say personality characteristic, and they're the ones who get caught early on, or they, or they flub the first type of kidnapping or assault, whatever, and they eventually get identified and put away before they have a chance becoming a serial rapist or a serial killer. So uh, it's it's interesting looking at all these type of uh, personalities as we've gone through our profiling profiling career and certainly our investigative career and what we've learned. So um, you didn't finish up in Denver, though I don't believe, right? Oh, sorry. No, did That's not right. did not finish up in Denver. And, and Denver is when 9-11 happened, and I was in charge of the office again. There was nobody else there, so we stood up the Emergency Operations Center. Won't go into all of that, but the reason I mentioned I was in Denver, because after 9-11, I really never saw Denver again for close to 10 months. Um, I went immediately to Las Vegas. It was one of the smaller offices. All 19 hijackers had been there, and they were in a change oh, of right. leadership. So we augmented that with 25 LA agents to cover all the leads. Then was sent to headquarters, I was home for one day, went to headquarters to work on Pent Bomb uh, for three months. So I came home only once during that three months working on the Pentagon bombing, came back for one day. And then I was one of four of the on-scene commanders for the 2002 Salt Lake City Olympics. And proud to say, or pleased to say, we, if you could take yourself back to that time, what a venue, right? To have thousands of people killed. Uh, 
although the intel was, you know, was not clear, we were very concerned about there being another terrorist attack at the Olympics. Well, it was so great that most of the agents were whining and complaining because they were bored. I was never (laughs) so glad to say, yes, yes, we're bored. That's that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So on my way leaving there, I got a call from um, Wanda Seifert, who was (laughs) the uh, assistant of then director, uh, FBI director Mueller. And so I get my cell phone and he said, congratulations, uh, you are the SAC of Los Angeles. So went home for three days and then reported to L.A. Um, from Los Angeles, I, uh, I thought I was going to stay there. Uh, still a little bit uh, altruistic for as old as I was. I thought, wow, L.A. is always understaffed. They don't have all the resources they need. I'm going to build this office up and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I got to stay there nine months uh, before Director Mueller interviewed me for the cyber division. And again, kind of a bozo on mine. I said, oh, sir, I'm not who you need. Um, And he was not much of a jokester, you know, good leader, but not much of a junkster. I said, sir, I don't know what cyber is with an S or a C. And I'm kind of, (laughs) he didn't think that was funny. And he said, no, I want you to be the director of this. I said, oh, no, no, no. I like my job as SAC. Thank you, but no, thank you. His response was, you don't, I'm not asking you. You don't seem to understand. Um, you are the new assistant director of the cyber division. So it was interesting. And I believe that's where you finished your career, right? Nope. Um, and and oh. again, just so you know, what you're so what hard to he track. Wanted, he wanted that, he, he, was, he was very uh, benevolent. He said, you're going to be testifying on the Hill a lot. So I want you for your leadership. You're also going to be building a team of predominantly non agents. The FBI did not have the cyber, the cyber skill set uh, in the agent population, so we hired external uh, non-agent people to, to run that, which was really a culture shock for them and, and for me dealing with them. But um, for personal reasons, my mom was still alive, um, and she had some very serious cancer. I asked to go back to the field just somewhere in the West Coast. So uh, he, Director Mueller goes, why do you want to be demoted? I said, a special agent in charge is not considered a demotion by most agents. <laughs> I felt like saying, because I don't have to work in headquarters anymore. <laughs> yeah. But I, I finished up as, yes, I finished up as the SAC in, in Phoenix. That's right. Okay. Now, we teased the, uh, our listeners and our viewers a little bit before, but somehow you made a fashion statement in the uh, venue of ballistic clothing for women. Walk us through that a little bit. Okay, so um, this was a shooting incident that I was in in Tampa. I won't bore you with what led up to it and um, because I had requested the SWAT team and was denied. But so as I had anticipated, we uh, knock and announce and the the, uh, offender was very dramatic, kind of like in the movies, you know, F you, I'm not going alive. Well, it was a three times you're out strike sort of thing. So he would have been looking at, you know, life imprisonment. So we start shooting. Well, we're in a not a great situation, the second level of a cheesy little apartment complex. And so I, I hide behind a pillar um, and it wasn't completely covering me. And I actually got shot in the hair. Um, but mm. after we did, the SWAT team did come and they uh, introduced the tear gas and whatnot to go in there. But the after action shooting investigation um, had indicated on some of the other shots where they were on the pillar and where some of my colleague men were standing. It would have been um, right about the naval area, would have been hit in that area. And our, as we used to call them, BPUs, uh, protective bullet, uh, 
BPUs, ballistic. bulletproof underwear. Ballistic. Uh, ballistic. Ballistic. Thank you. Because um, I was in the police department, we just called them bulletproof vests. But anyway, um, so the the female one was more like a, a breastplate. I'd refer to it as it, it. The focus was over the breast, but it didn't continue down past the navel area. And so I was thinking, well, you know, that's that's a dangerous area. You don't want to get shot in that area. Why are our vests not more like our male counterparts? So you get it when when you're in a shooting, the director or the deputy director, if the director's not around, calls you. So I got a call and are you okay? Yeah, fine. Okay, go out and have a beer with everybody. (laughs) That was always the, you know, if if you're okay, just go have a beer. And he said, is there anything else I can do for you? And I said, yes. And I explained the uh, ballistic proof undergarment. And um, he said, well, tell you what, I will make sure you go to Quantico. We're going to do a new uh, prototype for a vest and you provide your input of what areas you think need to be covered and how it wasn't when you were in your shooting. So I took him up on his invitation and was, was honored to be able to provide some input. And every female agent and law enforcement officer since then is probably appreciative of, uh, of, of you and your input there. And here, you Jim, Vers- told me, Jim you were the Vers- Jim, you were the Versace of bulletproof vest. Well, yeah, but Jim <laughs> told me, Janet, that you were on the cover of Vogue. Yeah. <laughs> or or guns and ammo. Either one would have been a compliment. More. Yeah, with her. Yeah, why not? I was right? not. No, was not on the cover of Oak. But, no. Thank you. What anyway. a uh, what a career! And you retired in two thousand six. Yes. Walk us through a little bit of that, and tell us why you decided to write a book. And I'm I know we didn't ask you everything about the book. Walk us through a little bit of that part. Um, I never really intended to write a book. Um, I think like a lot of us, especially in our our generation, and I know I'm older than you, um, but very private and in the FBI, just very private, private as people. Uh, And then to me, I thought, gee, the market has been saturated with this type of topic. Surely no one's interested. Um, And I was approached by a a couple of different publishing companies and they said, oh, you're wrong. You're wrong. Um, I I went to work in, in corporate. Um, and that was a great experience because uh, it, it fits into that does not kill you, you know, will make you better because I've been in a 30 year law enforcement cocoon. So it, it was very, very different. But when I started seeing um, uh, different books come out about this, I thought, you know what, I don't I don't need an advisor or a consultant. Uh, it's stuff that I did. I have all of my notes. There seems to be an interest. And then two other reasons. One of them is I've always felt very badly for for the victims of all the violent crimes that I worked. Um, As you well know, victims have no voice. And there is so much attention when you look, okay, Dahmer, Bundy, there's all these notorious names, but you don't know the victims. And I just thought one of the things that I learned with being around all the this um, just really vicious, heinous crimes and all that, I'm going to call it evil. Because it's really few. If you look at the big population, right, it's a few percentage. But because of looking at that, it helped me to recognize the goodness in most people. So I worked very diligently to have the opposite effect on my attitude. Um, I'm certainly not a Pollyanna, but it helped me to recognize how many people are just good people. And, you know, nobody's perfect and they stumble into things. And it really... To me, it was it was amazing to have that new lens, that new optic to look at things. And I wanted to share that. And I also am very passionate about helping younger women and men 
um, go to that next level, uh, whatever it is they're pursuing. And I thought this could be the platform to assist with that. Sounds good to me, Ray. Yeah. No, it's, I think that's great. So uh, in this book, and, and you've been a very big, uh, uh, you champion uh, the terminology as, a re, as it surrounds victimology and how important it is uh, to uh, the crime. And, and, and in most cases, uh, I remember when I first got involved in, in, the, in the behavioral science uh, unit and, and working with them from the field, that uh, when you'd go out and you'd ask or you'd talk to law enforcement, you say, what can you tell me about the victim? What can you tell me about victimology? And they had no idea what that was. And right. uh, you almost had to educate them with it. And, and I totally agree with you, Jana, how important uh, the victim is and how overlooked the victim is. And Jim and I uh, try and spend a lot of time talking about them. And we're so glad you brought that up in this show today. Uh, so, I, I mean, it, it's so it's overlooked so much that uh, and, and and it's just not right. Uh, and yeah. so I'm very happy that uh, there's people like you out there that uh, that have written a book that kind of deals with the victims. And and then you talk about and you say even interviewing some of the victims or even some of the wives of some of these serial families, some of the information that may come to us. I, I think it's just fantastic. I think it really yeah. is good stuff. And John, oh, I know you're aware. I know you're aware of this, but um, we uh, the to begin season two of Cold Red, we interviewed an Australian um, stalker survivor. She asked us politely and respectfully not to refer to as a victim. I mean, she was she survived this guy, so right. she prefers survivor. So obviously, if someone is murdered, deceased, they're a victim. But uh, but right. uh, but those are those those men or women sexual assault or some kind of assault attempts, if they make it through it, a lot of them prefer to be called survivors. And I think that's kind of a Absolutely. good trend from the, the nomenclature of uh, sort of the criminal justice world to let them know that they're not just someone who has no control over the situation. That's what victim kind of, you know, connotes. But with uh, survivor, it's a different perspective there. Absolutely. So, uh, I, I think that shows the resilience of someone, you know, yeah. the, the fight back. And like you said, to take charge of your own situation. Very much so. Well, where can we get a copy of your book, uh, Hearts of Darkness, Serial Killers, the Behavioral Science Unit, and My Life as a Woman in the FBI? Where can we get a copy of that? Well, I know it's on Amazon.com, bookshop.org, and I've actually seen it in a couple of bookstores. So um, I, I did a book signing. It was kind of funny, not this bookstore. It's called um, Murder by the Book. In, in Houston, and all they do, the whole bookshop, all it does is uh, homicide cases, wow. fiction oh, and boy. nonfiction. I'm not even going to joke about nothing bad ever happening in that store, because that would be no. the definition of irony. But we're not going to go there. Okay. Don't go there. Don't go there. Okay. Do have, uh, any TV appearances or a website you want to put out, anything like that? Oh, I wish I could put out a website. That's a whole other story, having trouble with that. It was supposed to have been up about uh, five weeks ago. Hopefully it will be next uh, next week. Then I'll make sure that I, I get that out. But um, I've, main, I've been um, doing a few little TV appearances here and there and um, kind of working on uh, a show that might come out. I don't know what's going what's gonna to come of that, but I'm letting other folks handle that for me because it's certainly not I, my era of expertise or knowledge. Well, I know enough about you personally and, of course, your professional career. If uh, you're involved as a tech advisor or, or consulting producer or something on a TV show or creator, uh, it'll be certainly something worth watching. And uh, 
if that ever happens, maybe you'd come back again and we could talk about that. Sure. And, you know, idea, though, because we, we talked about how there was a lot on, on Ted Bundy and then, you know, more recently the, the show Dahmer came out. But there hasn't been anything widespread about Kemper. And I think I hmm. think that's a missed opportunity uh, for, for that type of information. Yeah. Not to glorify him by any means, but to, no, no. to Not at all. Uh, educate. Yeah. Because we did learn so much from him. We did. We did. We really did. Well, um, we've gone a little bit over our usual hour. We want to thank you, Jana, for spending this time with us. Even uh, we'll send you the check for overtime uh, when the uh, uh, in the next week. The check will be in the mail, right, Ray? A- we saw AVP. Them? AVP. Yeah, there's, a, right. there's checks in this? Somebody, <laughs> yeah, I heard that. You, didn't, well, you forgot well, to mention that to you Ray. You haven't gotten yours either, Ray? Jeez. Uh, uh, it's in the mail, Jim. It's in the mail. Anyway, we want to thank you, Jana, for joining us and giving our audience a peek at an incredible 30-plus year career. Well, 22 for the FBI, but even more with that, with uh, with law, and, uh, law enforcement. You've, of course, been a, a great guest. Um, I'll tell everyone else out there, uh, subscribe to the Cold Red Podcast and follow us on all Cold Red Podcast social media platforms and coldredpodcast.com. We'll see you next week with yet another special guest. They're all special, right? How can we make one more special than the other. But until that's next time, until until next time stay safe. Be aware of your surroundings. It might just save your life. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Jana. See you, everyone, Jana. next time.